That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, we'll go a long way toward understanding exactly what NATO is, what it has to do with us, and what it has to do with the Russia-Ukraine war. One of my favorite things to do as a journalist is to find out about and explain things that we otherwise tend not to explain. Or sometimes maybe we don't even understand ourselves, those of us who work in the news. And we often, I think, just use terms and report things we don't fully understand. And we talk to the audience as if they already know everything. And in doing so, I think we leave you out of a lot of news events and discussions. Because if you don't already know about the news we're talking about and all the background, Well, we make it hard for you to pick up on it and understand. I was guilty of this as a young journalist. I found myself trying to meet deadlines in local news, for example, attending policy meetings for a county commission meeting and having to report quickly on something that I didn't understand. Well, if you listen through to the end of this podcast, I'm going to tell you an embarrassing but funny story about something that I did along those lines in local news. Anyway, I came to develop methods on how to try to get up to speed quickly on stories that I didn't understand, and it has to do with identifying good sources and asking the right questions. Again, too often, I think as journalists, we don't ask the right questions because we think we ought to know the answers already or we're embarrassed to look stupid, but I quickly learned that they aren't stupid questions when they're the questions that need to be asked to understand something, and if I need to ask them Maybe people at home also need those same questions answered. And particularly those experts need to be asked because they're not used to stepping outside of their skin and speaking to people who don't know their jargon and their business. So it's really a skill set you can develop as a journalist to talk to people who know a lot about something and try to get them to boil down what they know to fairly simple terms that we can all understand and that mean something to us in ways maybe they're not used to explaining things. So on to the topic of today's podcast. This Sunday on Full Measure, that's Sunday, September 18th, my story will be about my recent visit to NATO Allied Air Command at Ramstein Air Base in Germany. We were the first American crew permitted into the NATO Command Center designed exclusively for air operations throughout Europe. With Russia's attack on Ukraine, NATO set up these air operations specifically controlled out of this building that I went to for 24-7 coordination. And a shout out to my investigative producer, Daniel Steinberger. He's the reason that we get access to so many cool and interesting things, because on a lot of occasions, the people we ask for access say no to begin with, and he works with them and works on them until he gets a yes. And that's what happened here, and that's how we got to be the first U.S. crew and one of the only crews ever, in fact, allowed into this operations center. 
And I use this as an opportunity to do a story and ask some questions that explains a lot of basics because we in the news have been talking about NATO and Russia and Ukraine and matters that I'll bet most Americans have never had the time or taken the time to think much about or to research. So let me start by telling you a little bit of background. NATO's roots trace back to the late 1940s. We're talking about the time frame when the United Socialist Soviet Republic, the Soviet Union, the USSR, had partnered with us in the U.S. and Great Britain during World War II to fight the Nazis. So we were all on the same side in World War II. But post-war, under Joseph Stalin, the Marxist-Communist USSR began putting in communist-leaning leaders in some of the liberated countries. And so there grew a fear between we, the former allies with Russia and the Soviet Union, a fear that the Soviets would spread their communism further into Western Europe and beyond. So in 1949, the U.S. got together with 11 other founding members, countries that signed in Washington, D.C., a treaty called the Washington Treaty. And this was an agreement on a collective defense and a shared risk of the members. All of that to try to address what we saw or what the United States saw as the growing Soviet communist threat. For its part, then, the Soviets started their own alliance, which was equally as powerful. They called it the Warsaw Pact, and that was intended to balance this power. Well, the Soviets' treaty dissolved the Warsaw Pact when the Soviet Union fell at the end of 1991. So increasingly, there has been a sense of imbalance that, of course, favors we in the West. We're perfectly happy with the imbalance that we have more countries growing in this military alliance known as NATO, but Russia has been outbalanced on the negative side without its Warsaw Pact. NATO was a big part of the reason that Russia President Putin gave for escalating tension with Ukraine in the buildup to the war. Putin said that he was worried that Ukraine might join NATO. Why was that such a concern? Well, Take a look on a map, and I'll show this Sunday on full measure. If Ukraine joined NATO, that would put a bigger chunk of the Western military alliance right at Russia's doorstep. And this was a red line that Putin has long said could not be crossed. You can see why that would be a worry for Putin. Several military experts have likened it to our response and reaction if, for example, the Soviets were to put missiles on Cuba very close to the shore of the United States of America, how upset we were when that threatened to happen in the past during what was called the Cuban Missile Crisis. Well, from Putin's viewpoint, again, looking at it on the map, it would be even worse to have Ukraine joining NATO, covering so much of the Russia border on the west side, and also impacting a really key, important port. In any event today, there are 30 NATO members and right now you're going to hear from a German general, Christoph Pleet, who's deputy chief of staff operations at NATO headquarters. I started my interview with him by asking what it was like at NATO Allied Air Command when the Russia-Ukraine war broke out. So it was actually in a dormant situation. We operate our air operations from two separate organizations. 
two so-called combined air operation center, one in Udem, northern Germany, and one in Spain, Torrejon, close to Madrid. And they do the day-to-day -day operations when it comes to protecting of NATO airspace. When Ukraine happened, shortly before we activated this headquarters to coordinate all allied efforts in the air. What was the worry in the beginning? Because you told yes. me that it was much busier even then. Yes. So in the beginning, we were not quite sure what the intent of the Russians was. So we prepared to be able to escalate, de-escalate whatever the Russians were doing. We were defensive. We were in a high defensive posture. So we always had jets in the front. For the first three days, we were flying 24-7, three caps with fighter aircraft, armed fighter aircraft, uh, close to the border on the eastern flank and be prepared so if the Russians would fly into our airspace, we could defend every inch of NATO territory. What made you come to understand that is not an immediate threat? So they do, they do not react to us at all. We understand that they keep a safe distance from NATO territory. They are very careful not to attack any targets which are right on the border to Poland, for example. So not to spill over the conflict into NATO territory, and we can observe that. We have a pretty good idea what the Russians are doing every second. What sort of aggression would you look for that would be concerning in terms of a change in that status? So an aggression, that's a broad term. So if I would differentiate it in two topics. Topic number one would be the mistake of a tactical leader like a pilot or a tank commander shooting inadvertently into NATO territory. And you would then have to coordinate with the Russians via uh, the red phone, uh, the American forester, Sakur in Monsas. Uh, was it intentionally or was it not intentionally? And the, the case can be settled and investigated. The other one would be a preparation of an attack into NATO territory, which would need approximately 30 to 60 days to at, at least have a minimum effect onto NATO forces. But we would really identify what the Russians were doing. You would, you would expect to have some warning we have, we have all the warnings, yes. Can you explain the limits or the bounds in terms of what NATO can do and is doing currently when it comes to Ukraine? So the limit is clear. It's given by our political leaders. We are not in a crisis mode. We are in peacetime, which means all the peacetime regulations apply. You are not shooting down Russian aircraft if they cross the border unless... They are attacking and you are defensive, so you always can do self-defense, extended self-defense, and you always can protect your own forces should there be an attack on your own forces and your own population. But those are the normal peacetime regulations. So we are not allowed, in accordance with the regulations we have, to do any offensive operations against the Russians. But we don't want to do that. We are clearly a defensive alliance, and we just want to defend the alliance against a Russian aggression. In terms of defensive strategies, what are we doing? We are actually shielding at the moment against any Russian possible invasion into Russian uh, into European territory. So we are flying at the borders, so-called so cap missions with armed fighter aircraft. We have on ground alert, 15 minutes readiness armed aircraft as well to be able to react to any situation which might arise. And we do a lot of training to keep our crews ready to be able to escalate and de-escalate as we wish for. Does Russia watch this activity that's happening kind of along that border? And is this considered something that helps keep them in check? Yes, of course. Um, we are playing deterrence. That's uh, the, the normal game uh, between, between powers. So you want the opponent to understand and know that you are ready and you are able to defend your territory. So it would not make sense to defend 200, 300 kilometers behind the borders. It's quite close to the borders. 
but in a safe distance to the border. I don't know if this is outside your area, but I understand that there was a new strategic document adopted in Madrid, Spain. Yes. How is NATO adapting from what it's been to what it perceives it needs to be in the future? So after 2014, the first invasion of the Russians into Ukraine, NATO was already developing into a different organization. So the Article 5 defense of NATO territory became more and more important for NATO. But now after that invasion, it's crystal clear to all political leaders that we cannot trust Russia in its behavior, so we have to be prepared for a Russian attack into NATO territory. And that is actually what, what changed. Uh, is it a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's, it's a neutral thing. We are defending our territory. All the nations, 13 nations, are prepared to defend NATO, and that's what we are going to do. Aside from what we might think of as traditional warfare with a country invading another, there is different kind of war going on than there was 30 years ago when it comes to terrorism attacks and maybe a single attack by a single force, not even really a country. Has NATO adjusted its strategy to address that as well? We already did in the past. You're talking about hybrid warfare. Uh, this hybrid warfare means that you're using non-conventional uh, tactics to attack an opponent, so with strategic communication, uh, counter-intelligence operations, you're doing hacking into computers. So this is what we expect as well, and this is laid down in the concepts of NATO, so we are prepared uh, to counter those operations as well. Is there anything else you'd like to tell me about with your operations or that an American audience ought to know? The, the operations, I would like to tell the American audience that the United States is one of 13 nations. And uh, of course, it's a nation with an asterisk because it's an important nation with a lot of military capabilities. But the power of NATO is because we are 30 nations, 30 nations having one will against one opponent. The opponent has to think about whether they would like to take us or not. I talked to a lot of people on my NATO trip, and interestingly, one official off-camera brought up Donald Trump when he was talking to me, and he told a story about when President Trump was demanding that NATO members pay more of their fair share. I believe NATO members have agreed to spend at least 2% of their gross domestic product on this shared collective defense. But in 2017, when President Trump took office... Only four of the nations were meeting the threshold. The United States was paying well above 3.6%. Greece was meeting its obligation. Surprising because they really had a lot of trouble financially, but they were paying 2.4%. The United Kingdom was paying 2.1% and Poland was paying 2%. And that's it, according to the records I saw. And Donald Trump really harped on this. All the other countries were paying less. So this official at NATO was telling me that Leaders from other countries during the time period when Trump was making an issue out of this would go into meetings and they would gripe and complain about it. And I asked, well, what were they saying? And he said, they said, I guess we better pay our fair share. And I said to this official, so it worked? And he said, it worked. And I looked it up. And by 2021, after Trump had been in office and made such an issue, 10 countries were meeting their percentage targets. And according to research that I just looked up, the top 10 countries with their proper defense expenditure of at least 2% in 2021 were Greece, 3.82%, United States, 3.52%, Croatia, United Kingdom, 
Estonia, Latvia, Poland, Lithuania, Romania, and France. But let me add here that the United States pays a lot more than that 3% or so that we're talking about. According to Taxpayers for Common Sense, NATO members also make direct cash payments for something called common funding arrangements. These payments support NATO's staff and the operating costs of Alliance headquarters. They cover NATO's military budget, which is described as the costs of the Alliance's integrated command structure, and they cover the NATO Security Investment Program, which helps improve military capabilities of newer member nations. The total cost for the common funding arrangements in 2020, as quoted by Taxpayers for Common Sense, was about $2.76 billion. The contributions from the United States accounted for roughly 16.3% of the total about $442 million. More after a short break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Now we will hear from Colonel Edwin Markey, representing the U.S. He's a director of management at NATO Allied Air Command. I started out by asking him, what is NATO? So simply, I would say NATO is a political alliance. It gives the nations of NATO the opportunity to sit down and talk about issues that impact them as nations and impact them as an alliance, and then try to find a way forward. Interesting you should say that because I feel when I've reported it over the years, not having been here, it's always called a military alliance. Yes. So my experience in the Air Force has has taught me that we do a, a relatively poor job of explaining to our servicemen and women what NATO is and we keep we keep telling them that it is a military alliance it is there for the defense uh, but really that piece of NATO is very very small uh, and it ties into and provides that military judgment to a much larger political organization where those actual discussions are made at a national and multinational level. Can you explain in simple terms what's going on in this room? In this room right here, this is our operations center, and this is where the NATO air operations are actually conducted. 
connected. So the folks in this room will look at the plan that we had for today, and they will look at what is actually happening out in the skies today and ensure that what we are doing is matching the plan and then handling any changes. What types of things might happen? You can give a hypothetical or something that's happened in the past in this room. Okay, so things that might happen uh, would be weather. If I have a big storm roll through a huge weather front that is going to impact the flights for the day, the folks in this room, or we plan those flights, they'll cancel them, they'll move airplanes to clear airspace. Um, you want to talk about exercises and what would happen during exercises as you plan for uh, you know, red on blue engagements. They would, they would vector blue jets to red jets. Um, that would happen in this room here through the folks on the floor to our chief of combat ops who would then run that to the director uh, to make sure that those engagements are happening, that we're going airplanes to the right places. Do we have an AWACS up in the air that provides this? Do we have a control and reporting center that can see over here? Is that center up and running? Is it not up and running? Uh, various things like that. In the early days of the Ukraine war, after this was started up, this facility, what was the atmosphere like when people weren't sure was Putin going to stop with, with what he'd done in Ukraine or was perhaps more going to happen? So the atmosphere in this room and the entire building uh, was one of what I would, I would classify as controlled chaos. Uh, the folks in this building are trained very well to handle this mission, to to plan, to execute, to coordinate, and deconflict air operations across the European theater. Uh, and everybody knows how to do their job. And everybody is, is always excited to be able to go and do their job. Uh, and this gave everyone an opportunity to do that job, to practice and do what we have been trained. Um, what would you say is the status as we stand here today? Obviously, the Ukraine war is still going on with Russia. As you all have told me, there doesn't seem to be an imminent threat of Russia going beyond that. But what would you say things are like today? Uh, so I would say more of a steady state. Um, we kind of have a, a history of what has happened and kind of looking at where we are going. Um, you can look across and, and see the number of folks in this room and kind of what they're doing. And what they're doing right now is, is very indicative of what they would be doing uh, if we weren't here. The level of uh, interaction, the level of talking uh, would be about this. In addition to the actual military operations, there's a lot of messaging that takes place when it comes to what NATO does. Is that accurate? That is accurate. Can you explain that? Um, so we have a, a comms div here that, that works with our PA and our, our strategic communications. And everything we do has a, uh, has a strategic communication message to it. And that is coordinated very well with, with shape uh, and uh, what we do here. So we don't, we don't run out. We don't engage uh, unilaterally. It is all under the umbrella of shape. On a basic level, what I'm getting at is when NATO planes fly somewhere and what they do when they're only training sends a signal to mm -hmm. people who are watching. And, and you're asking what that signal is? Well, just can you explain how that works? That, that the enemy countries or countries that may want to know what we're doing, I assume they're looking to see what signals NATO's sending with its actions in a way. So when we're out training, um, we are we are showing that we are capable, we are ready, we are assuring the alliance that we can do our jobs. Uh, we are working on our interoperability. Uh, we are working to, again, train how you want to fight and fight how you want to train. So when we put those dissimilar airplanes up, we put them up from multiple nations. Uh, we are practicing that interoperability, which goes to feed that assurance for our partners and allies, and it goes to feed that deterrence for anyone who's looking to see what is NATO capable of. 
two of, I guess, the most important adversaries to the United States right now, which are Russia and China, are things that we're watching carefully. What is NATO operations doing from an air standpoint to kind of keep their pulse on anything they may have to do regarding that? Now that I would have to defer to our our Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations and, and to shape. Is there anything else you'd like to add that I didn't ask something that Americans, you'd like Americans to know about what goes on here? I would. Um, this is a fantastic opportunity for Americans to get to learn about our partners and allies, uh, to see that we are not that different uh, in the way that we operate, to see that the way we look at issues and problems may differ a little bit, but that helps to broaden our view on how you approach a problem, and it lets us uh, build relationships with each other so that if we need to do something, we already have contacts and we understand how they do things. And I thought of one more question. NATO's membership goes up from time to time. I guess maybe it even went down once, but more nations sometimes are added to the alliance. Why not Ukraine if Ukraine needs NATO help so much? So that would be a political decision. Back to NATO being a political organization, a political alliance. So that is something for uh, the North Atlantic Council and uh, and the permanent reps up there at, uh, at Brussels. To That's not decided through. by the head of NATO? No, ma'am. That is decided by all of the nations together. As to that worry that Putin often cited, Ukraine's potential membership in NATO, whatever happened to that? Well, ironically, Ukraine doesn't even meet NATO requirements and is unlikely to in the near term. In other words, if that was a real concern of Putin's, it's something that he apparently need not have worried about. And if you're a regular viewer of Full Measure, you already knew that because I interviewed retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, an expert on some of these matters, and he explained that Ukraine has pre-existing border disputes with Russia, there is civil unrest there, there is rampant corruption, there is a debate over whether Ukraine is a full democracy, and all of these things disqualify Ukraine from becoming a member of NATO. And Colonel Davis said he thought the United States should have taken steps to assure Putin that that was a non-starter, that it wouldn't have required us or the West to give up anything to say that, and that it might have helped matters. On the other side, though, there were those who said, well, we can't appear to be giving in or indulging Putin's concerns. Now, here's that story I promised about something that I did when I was in local news. I was working at WBNS, the CBS affiliate in Columbus, Ohio, And it was only my second real job, and I was brand new in the market, so I didn't know Ohio, nor did I know Columbus very well at all. And I was sent out in late afternoon to cover a meeting for the 11 o'clock news, the late news. And this was some sort of municipal meeting about which power was going to be discussed, and there were apparently some controversies that would come up at the meeting. Now, this is before the internet like we had it, so there wasn't an easy way to get up to speed on things like this, and nobody told me what the real issues were, so the plan was I was going to go to the meeting, listen to what was going on, identify some people to talk to and explain to me what was really happening on both sides, and then put it all together for a story for the 11 o'clock news. So I've just arrived. I have no information And I get word that the office is expecting me within a matter of minutes to suddenly do a live shot for the five o'clock news. And I'm to do it, by the way, from inside the meeting room while the meeting's going on, which they won't allow. But I'm told 
by the bosses back at the news headquarters that that's where it's going to be. So we set up and I realize I'm going to have to kind of whisper, but far worse than that, I have no idea what's going on. I don't even know vaguely what the controversy is about. I'm simply at a municipal power meeting of some kind where I'm told some controversy is going to be discussed or going to arise. And I'm kind of in a full-fledged panic because I have nothing to say. Not to mention that I had very little experience doing live shots back then. I didn't even have time to come up with a plan B. So before I know it, I'm live on the news in a pretty brand new job for me trying to prove myself. And I start saying things that I think could only qualify as gibberish. To this day, I can't even tell you what nonsense actually came out of my mouth. I only knew that it didn't make any sense. I was in sort of a panic state. I was thinking that my career was passing before my eyes as I spoke these nonsensical words. Now, the cameraman and the live crew, he's just one guy. This was in local news. He knows and I know that I've just had one of the world's most disastrous live shots known to man. But he didn't really say anything. He was super nice. And I don't even remember what I reported on for the 11 o'clock news. But the one thing I do remember is I dreaded walking back into the station because I knew all of these people who I worked with and worked for would be thinking what an idiot I am. And I didn't even know if I'd have a job at the end of that night or the end of the week. So I walk into the newsroom. It's sort of this walk of shame, walk of doom. And there's definitely a weird and awkward vibe with people sort of not really looking up and kind of ignoring me as I walk through the newsroom. And then finally, one person says to me something like, too bad about that live shot. And I was kind of like, yeah, too bad about that. And then I thought, that's sort of a weird comment, too bad about the live shot. It didn't seem to quite fit with me having sputtered nonsense. But I kept moving through the newsroom, finding my way to my desk, and somebody else comes up to me and says something like, that's a shame what happened with the live shot. And I said to the person, yeah, that's a shame, but what do you mean? And the person said, you know, how the audio was messed up, how it was silent the whole time you were talking. I thought for a moment and then I said, so you didn't hear anything from the live shot? And the person reiterated, no, it was just silent. It was awful. Well, I can tell you, I have never been so delighted for a technical difficulty in my life. I kept my job and I'm glad to say there is no recording in existence, no evidence of what I said at that meeting. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and that if so, you'll leave a good review, subscribe to it and share it with your friends. Check out my other podcast, the Cheryl Ackeson podcast. And remember to watch Full Measure Sunday, September 18th for my NATO story. For a station list, go to CherylAckeson.com and click the Full Measure tab and you will see a list of TV stations and times. It will also explain how to watch on our free app called Stir, S-T-I-R-R, and how you can watch live online or replays at fullmeasure.news. Now you can also support independent journalism causes by visiting CherylAxon.com and clicking the store tab. 
there are some thought-provoking and fun products with slogans like, I tested positive for critical thinking. These are designed exclusively for independent and free thinkers with proceeds benefiting independent reporting causes. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself. 